Hi, good morning, church. So I want to first and foremost uh, thank all of you parents who attended the parent conference and the volunteers who made that happen. It was fantastic, and it is our privilege to empower, um, equip, and there was another word too, uh, the parents. And so honestly, thank you for being part of it. And then dads, one of the things that was challenged uh, this last week was being, yesterday was being intentional with our plans and with our kids. Daddy-daughter dance is an intentional moment. So make sure that if you have a daughter, you bring your daughter to the daughter to the daddy-daughter dance, and it will be fantastic. So we're in Romans. Go ahead and take your Bibles. I want you to open up to Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, if it's on your phone, that's fine. You can pull up on your phone. If you don't have either, it'll be on the screens. But let me make sure that we're all on the same page here because, you know, we just came out of a year of studying the book of Genesis, and Genesis goes sort of from story to story to story. There's a narrative to it, and as we get into Romans, it's just one letter, and so it's a letter that's being written, and we're slicing it up, and so you're walking in, perhaps, to the first piece of it, and we go verse by verse as we teach the scripture, and so if you walk in, you may feel a little bit lost. I'm going to make sure that I catch everybody up, and here's how I'm going to catch you up today. Really simply put, Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually wrote the book of Romans. He, he wrote this letter to the church in Rome. The church was actually started because in uh, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost took place. The Holy Spirit of God just flooded down. People got um, saved by the thousands. And then when they went home, went back to Rome, they get back to Rome and they started a church. Paul, in 57 AD, writes them a letter and it's called Romans. Now, the New Testament, it's set up. It's really easy to understand how the New Testament is set up. You've got the, the first four books are the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels. After the Gospels, you have the book of Acts. Acts is the birth of the church. And then from Acts forward, you have the epistles. You have the letters to the churches until you get up towards the end and get into the book of Revelation. And so really easy to understand the formation of where we're at because it goes from the Gospels to the birth of the church and then letters to the church. And Paul's letter to Rome is real, this is, it's Christianity 101. It's literally, it's very difficult stuff. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kid you. But it is, what does it mean to be a Christian? And I think we lose focus of what it means to be a Christian. So today as we dive into this, remember it is just a letter that we are dissecting. My wife and I were high school sweethearts and 
Um, I st first started writing her love letters when I was 16 years old. And we have kept all of these letters. We got boxes of little notes we've written where we wrote back and forth to each other. And to pick one up and to read just a section of it, it's, you, there's, it's impossible. You have no idea of context. And so for you, it may feel like you don't understand the context coming in, but you will by the time we're done. So Paul's writing this letter to the Church of Rome. Let me pray over it. God, as we take this slice of this letter, I pray, God, that you would speak boldly to us. Lord, there's not a, a brother or sister in this room today who doesn't feel at times like we are missing the mark or we have missed what you have for us. And so, God, what I pray in this room today is that the power of your Holy Spirit would not just move around us, but you would move directly in us. You would speak to our hearts using your word. Speak to us today. I pray that you would transform lives and hearts. Let us change the way we see you, our creator. I pray, Lord, that you would remove the scales from our eyes, would soften our heart towards the Spirit, and you would motivate and stir our hearts to actually walk after you. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for your word. Now speak to us, please, in the name of Jesus. Everybody in the house said, Amen, amen, amen. Romans chapter 2. Let's pick up in Romans chapter 2. I will read the verse and then you'll, I'll get you caught up. It says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So anytime you see the word therefore in the English language, especially in the Bible, therefore, you ask one question. What is that question? What is it there for? Well, it is there because Paul has started this letter saying the gospel. He's like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, the gospel reveals God's righteousness. It reveals his goodness. And the gospel also reveals his wrath. And so Paul starts the letter saying, you need to understand that the gospel, the story of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus reveal God's goodness to us. And on the other side of the coin, it also reveals his wrath to us. I want to take this in, though, because um, last week I, I used this concept of permissible wrath. I talked about God's wrath, and I, there were three forms. I talked about the great white judgment, the big judgment that will take place. That's God's wrath will fall. We're going to address that today as well. But there was what was called permissible wrath. And I had several questions last week of people who came to me afterwards. Even in my life group, we sort of discussed this on Sunday night. It was, hey, so if you can't lose your salvation, what does the permissible wrath of God mean for us as believers? Because remember, he's writing this to Christians, the church in Rome. Well, the permissible wrath of God means this. Yes, you are saved. You are a believer. I, what I said is I said, I fear. One of my greatest fears is my wife, my kids, living in the permissible wrath. And so people are like, well, aren't they believers? Aren't they Christians? And I said, my kids are. <laughs> and so is my wife. And so, but yeah, they, they are. So let me paint the picture. There's a story in the New Testament, in one of the Gospels. It's called the prodigal son. Most of you are familiar with this. You have the dad who his son went off with his inheritance and just rolled around in the slop and the mud. And then when he decided to come back, he came back and the father welcomed him back. But the son went off and walled it around. God's permissible wrath means, yes, you are a Christian, but you can get caught up. You can find an addiction even as a Christian. 
yeah, as a Christian, you still are going to make some mistakes. As a Christian, you can still go wallowing in the mud, but God is so faithful in his permissible wrath. When you leave him, you are not going to be under his hand of protection, but he will always be there ready to receive you as his child. And so I just need us to understand that the permissible wrath doesn't mean losing your salvation. It just means that you may go roll in the mud a little bit. And that's what I don't want for my family. That's not what I want for you. And so the permissible wrath, I want you to grab a hold of this too. It says, Oh man, everyone who judges. Now, this is going to seem strange that we've went from the gospel is so good. It talks about the goodness of God. It also reveals the wrath of God. And now he's talking about judging one another. It's going to seem like, where did that come from? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it together for us when we get to verse 4. All right? But he's talking about the passing of judgment. And the reason he's dealing with passing of judgment is because he says you condemn yourself because you practice. Practice. I'm not talking about a game. I'm talking about Practice. This word practice is prosso in Greek. It's prosso, prosso. And it started last week, at the end of, the, end of last week, and it's going to take us into the next several verses, this word practice. Go back to 132 for me. This is where we ended last week. Though they know God's righteous decree, it means they know God's word. And if you know God's word, that means you know his goodness. But even though they know his goodness, those practice such things. That practice it's so that those who sin, they practice against living in God's permissible wrath. He says they desire, they deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So here we go. Practice, practice, practice. It's a theme. And what Paul was really pointing towards, and my nose is running really bad. What Paul was actually pointing towards is he was saying, listen, this idea of practicing, he uses this these, he says them. Go back to uh, chapter 2, verse 1. He says these things. Practice the very same things. Practice, it's talking about sin. So those who practice to live outside of God's grace and his mercy, those who practice his permissible wrath, he's like, this is going to be a problem. Here you go in verse 2. Watch verse 2. He says in verse 2, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Here we go again. Practice such things. We're talking about practice. I need a Kleenex really bad. Those who practice. Oh, you got one? Man, a whole package? Are, are they brand new? It's what? Brand new. Like, I don't even know what to do here. There we go. You need a tissue? No? Okay, I'm going to toss it back to you. Oh, you want me to keep it? Okay. Okay, hold on just a second. I'm going to blow my nose. Hey, talk amongst yourself for a second. A little something, something. Okay, I'll put that in my pocket, and I'll, see, I'll eat that later. Um, all right, here we go. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls. So God's judgment rightly falls. What he's just said is, those of you who want to cast judgment, you condemn yourself because God himself rightly judges. This means God is good, and in his goodness, he is going to allow judgment to fall. Now, this judgment, I want to get to the judgment, so hold your horses on that. But God's judgment rightly falls. In other words, God is just and he is right. You don't need to be consumed with or concerned with what's happening around you. It's, it, for whatever reason, though, it grabs a hold of us, doesn't it? What other people are doing. 
Like, it just grabs us. I had, I had somebody last week, two weeks ago, um, I got permission to tell the story, sat down with them, and they spent 45 minutes telling me everything wrong their neighbor, not their biblical neighbor, their actual next-door neighbor does. And I'm like, and we were having the conversation. I finally said, hey, I just have a question. Like, what do you want me to do about this? And why are you telling me this? And like, I just had to get it off my chest. I'm like, what I think you need to do is you need to stop worrying about your neighbor. You need to take your eyes and you need to focus them on God because God is good. You're looking at all the bad in the world. Look at how good God is. But it's in us. We grab a hold of this. We, um, this is, we're all judgmental. We have it in us. Um, I suffered the wrath of your judgment. In fact, this is probably several years ago. Long story short, I had a transmission go out in my car. It was going to cost like $6,500 or something crazy for me to get a new transmission put in my car. And so I decided I'm just going to get a new car. And um, it was old. Anyway, it had tons of miles on it. And so I, I searched and searched and searched. I found a car. It was $15,000. It had 22,000 miles on it. And it was fantastic. It was like the perfect car for me. Perfect price. It was awesome. It was actually in Sun City. And uh, the lady had, it was her husband's dream car. He had passed away, and she was selling everything so she could move up north with her kids. And so I'm like, this is a perfect thing. Well, before I make big decisions, like financial decisions, I typically will talk to an elder or two about what I'm thinking about doing just to make sure everything's above reproach. And so, um, any rate, I called one of our elders at the time. I won't sell him out, but it was Brent Kettle. And um, I said— I go, hey, so um, I, found, I found this car. It's, it's $15,000. Just tell me what, what, how much it was. Um, and he's like, okay. And I said, got 22,000 miles on it. He goes, okay. And he goes, what kind is this? I said, hold on, hold on. It's so nice. It's like brand new. It's like been in the garage. And he goes, what kind is this? I was like, don't worry about that. It's so nice. I, I just want to, you think it'd be all right? He goes, I just need you to tell me one thing. I was like, what's that? He goes, what kind of car is it? And I said, it's a BM. And before I could get W out, he said, no. No, our pastor's not driving a BMW. See, your beady, judgmental eyes. <laughs> and so I'm not kidding you. I went and spent, I'm not going to tell you much more. I went and spent more money on a car so that you didn't judge me. <laughs> this is the world. It's, I get it, though. I get it. I totally understand. But it is funny that it lives in all of us, doesn't it? It lives in us. And Paul is saying, hey, as Christians— you need to understand how devastating it is when you begin to take your eyes off of God's goodness and off of the gospel and place them on the things around you. Let me keep pedaling here. I'm going to get down to verse 3. In verse 3, it says, Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things? He's still talking about practice. Practice such things, and yet you do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? This word, suppose, it's actually the Greek word, which is logjamizi, logjamizi, something like that. Go with me. It's logjamizi, logjamizi. It depends how you want to say it. I'm from Texas, so I say logjamizi. It's where we get our word logic. Logja, logic. It's where we get our word logic from. And so what Paul has just done here is he's asked a question. I think it's a reasonable question. He has wrote a letter to the church, and he says, do you logic, he's saying logic, do you logic that if you judge someone for their sin, that it's going to remove your sin? Is that your logic? That's what he's actually saying here. Next verse, he's going to continue, and he says, or do you suppose, or do you suppose, and this idea of suppose, where, where, where are you at there? Oh, verse, go to verse 3. Suppose, 
It's logic. And then we're going to go down to the next verse. And presume, verse 4, it says, Or do you presume, and this idea of presume, this is a little different word. This is the word disregard, or to think lightly of, or, or flippant of. He's like, or do you disregard on the riches of his kindness, speaking of God, his forbearance, his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Isn't this a crazy thing? He's saying, do you logic... Do you logic that if you judge, it's going to remove your sin? That's your logic? Or do you simply presume, do you disregard God's goodness and his kindness and that he has the ability to draw people to himself, even through a forgiving spirit? I want you to be able to tackle this with me because what's fascinating to me is Paul has said, your logic is it removes your sin, or do you disregard that God is goodness and in his goodness it draws us to repentance? And he's proposed these two things. And now I want to tie them together. Where did we get from the gospel that reveals God's goodness, the gospel that reveals God's wrath, to us being condemned for judging one another? How did we get there? Well, I'll tell you how I think we got there. In Acts chapter 15, Luke, the writer of the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 15, he's talking about Paul standing in front of the council in Jerusalem. And so we know firsthand that Paul and Luke had a friendship, had a relationship. It goes a step further. We also understand and know that Paul and Luke, most scholars agree that they traveled together. So Paul and Luke were friends. So Paul and Luke had a relationship. And so as Paul is traveling with Luke, Paul, you have to know that Paul was saying, hey, as I follow Jesus, what did Jesus himself say matters? What was important to Jesus? Tell me this or tell me that. Or maybe Paul, in his self-righteousness, was saying, I can't believe the car that guy drives. I can't believe that my neighbor continues to keep their lights on at night. I can't believe, and maybe, just maybe, Paul was complaining about the people around him. And Luke the writer of the Gospel of Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, his traveling companion, maybe it's possible that Luke said, well, let me, let me tell you a story. And here's the story. You can go to Luke chapter 9, 18 for me. Here's the story. Go to verse 10. Jesus once told a story, and he said these two men, they went up to the temple to pray, and one of them was a Pharisee. It means he was religious. And the other was a tax collector. They were despised. The Pharisee, Verse 11, was standing by himself. He prayed this. This is what he prayed. He prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this stinking tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, no, no, no. He's standing far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, and he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And then Jesus said this. Paul, Luke said to Paul, he said, he said, look, Jesus said, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified. That means he's right with God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I find this fascinating to know that there's this inner web, this connection between Paul and Luke. And as Paul is expressing how good the gospel is because it expresses and reveals God's goodness, he then goes straight into this concept of judging and what that does to us as believers. Because Paul knew that it took our eyes off of God's goodness and it put our eyes on the people around us. Sounds a little bit like social media, doesn't it? But nonetheless, here's the picture I want you to have. I grew up in uh, a home that was very far from God. 
I did not grow up in church, and then when I went to church, I went to a very, um, I'm going to say conservative and very, very older congregation. Say it like that. They were stuck in their ways. And I was convinced that I was to hate sin. Hate sin, hate sin, hate sin, hate sin. And that's not a bad concept. But no one ever taught me in my early years that I was also, actually more importantly, I was supposed to actually love God's goodness. Because yes, sin put Jesus on the cross and I should hate it when I sin because I'm putting him back on the cross. But God's goodness covered my sin by allowing Jesus to go on the cross. So yes, I should hate sin because it's my sin that put him on the cross, but it's God's goodness that put him on that cross. And God's goodness should compel me. God's goodness should drive me. I, I'm, 1989, Ted Bundy, a serial killer, he's in prison. Dr. James Dobson actually goes and spends time with him while he's on death row, and he leads him to repentance. Ted Bundy confessed Christ as a Savior, and the church at that time, Christians all over all over the place, were outraged. No way possible would God forgive that man. No way possible can he do that. He can't live however he wants, and then at the last minute, the 11th hour, repent? No, no. It's because the church had been taught to hate sin more than the goodness of God, loving the goodness of God. We trained ourselves. In the Bible, we should see this. We should know this. Jonah, you know Jonah in the Bible, gets swallowed by the whale. Jonah, you know Jonah. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Do you remember why? He told God this. He said, those people are insane. They are sinners, and they are wicked, and no, I don't want to go there. In fact, in Jonah chapter 4, he says exactly why he didn't want to go there. He said, God, I don't want to go there because I hate their sin. You need to judge them. And God's saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you not believe in my goodness? Do you not believe that I am good? Do you not believe that if you go and you share my goodness, that they will be compelled to repent of their sins? Isn't it in us to hate sin rather than focus on and love God's goodness? And Paul is trying to express the gospel. The gospel is about how God, even though I deserve nothing, you deserve nothing from God. And he's so good and he's so gracious that he gave his son for you. He willingly chose to forgive us of our sins, you and I. That's his goodness on display. Instead, we want to focus on everyone else. We want to focus on sin. And Paul is trying to tell the church, early church in Rome, guys, I need you to stop looking around and I need you to look up. I need you to see God's goodness and the fullness of his goodness because God's goodness says no one's ever too far gone. God's goodness says I don't care what you're walking through, I still got you. God's goodness says I know that you have been rolling around in the mud, but here I am, son. Come on, come home, come back to me. God's goodness says I know that in your heart of hearts you struggle and you battle and you doubt and you have fears. He's saying come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. I know that in God's goodness, those who battle anxiety, those of you who are battling depression, God's saying, I get it, I understand you have been through some junk, but my goodness is better than your junk. And so God's goodness should compel us. He says here, Paul says, don't you know it draws us to repentance. What that means is it draws you to respond. God's goodness draws us to respond to him. 
And, I, and I'm fascinated by this because, let's go to the next verse, verse 5, because he says, because of your hard and unrepentant heart, that's penance, that means uh, there's no repentance taking place, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay, it's really important as Paul's writing this letter that we see this, okay? So he has just talked about God's, the gospel reveals God's goodness. Yeah, it reveals his wrath, but it reveals his goodness. He's like, stop judging people because God's goodness is on display. He's saying, there will come a time for judgment, but it won't be you who's giving it. It's not your responsibility. Our job, our responsibility is to make sure that the gospel, the goodness of God is being reflected and shown to the world. It's not our job to judge the people around us. Now listen to me really carefully. He's going to change his tone here. He's going to change his tune. He's actually going to transition. He says here, the day of wrath when God's judgment will, will be revealed. So this is a specific day. Do you see this? This is going to be the judgment day. He is referencing judgment day. Remember how he went practice, 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 practice. He was on that theme. Now he's on the theme of judgment, but not your judgment. He's on the theme of God's judgment, and he's going to keep this theme for the next several verses. So as we're reading this letter, we can't lose sight of what he's actually trying to say. So I'm going to keep asking you the same question. I'm going to say when, and you're going to say on judgment day. So when I say when, what do you say? That's right. Wow, good response. And so he says this. He says, because, but because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you were storing up wrath. Remember, we looked at that word last week. That's orge. That's like, um, it's not tempest, which is the word that would be like a thermometer or, um, or fire or red hot anger. This is a different word. This is the word for wrath. It's like storing up. It's like a dam that's going to pour out water. So it's like you are storing this up. And on the day, on the day, everything you've stored up, all of your disobedience, all of your doubt, all of your focusing on everything else, all of your ignoring God's goodness, because you've ignored this, God's going to release the dam, and judgment will fall. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his work. He will render, this is saying God on judgment day, what day? Judgment day is going to render according to his work. So the works that you do, now remember, you do not work for your salvation, you don't work for your salvation, you work because of your salvation. And we have to keep in mind exactly what's taking place here. He's saying, look, when judgment day comes, he will render. He's going to give to each one according to what he has done. I know that many in this room would love a to-do list. If I said, hey, if you do these five things, this is going to please God. This is going to make everything work. You're going to be so satisfied by this. But if I put five things on paper that you're supposed to do, you would then begin to work, either think you're working for your salvation, which you're not. This isn't about salvation. This is working because you're saved, not working for your salvation. You get that. If I put five things down, you would begin to work towards these five things. That would be your goal. That would be your focus. Our goal and our focus is not to do the things. Our focus is that we respond to the Spirit that dwells in us. Our purpose is and everything that we do is to respond to what God is calling us to do. Now, yes, 100% his works, the work of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, all these things are in the Bible, and we will study these and learn these. But what he's speaking of here directly is the things that you put in, the work you do on Judgment Day, it's going to be discussed. We're going to have a discussion. But listen to this, verse 8. He says, but for those, I'm sorry, verse 7, yeah. He says, verse 7, he says, to those, to those you're going to see two people here, two different people. This is the first people. To those who 
by patience and well-doing, seek his glory, that should be his glory, his glory, and honor him. And in mortality, this means live by the Spirit. He will give eternal life. He's saying, so to the one who does what is good. Now remember in Luke chapter 18, verse, I don't know, 18 or 19, 18 and 19, who is good? Only God. Who is good? Only God. So what he's pointing towards here is like those of who focus on God, those who repent to God, those who turn their lives to God, this is going to be the gift. When? That's right. On Judgment Day, those, because of their salvation, have lived in seeking to do good, giving Him glory, giving Him honor, living in the Spirit. Those people, they're going to have eternal life. But those, next verse, verse 8, but those, these are the other people, but for those, so to those who have done this, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, we could say suppress the truth, that's what he said in chapter 1, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This means judgment. God's judgment will fall on all who have rejected to pursue and glorify his goodness. So what Paul has just done, he's like, look, the gospel reveals his goodness, it reveals his wrath. It's not your job to judge, it's God's, but those who reveal his goodness— those who live in his goodness, those who rest in his goodness, those who work in his goodness, those are his people. He says, what does it mean to be a Christian? He's like, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is you recognize how good his work is. You recognize how the goodness of God is all-encompassing. And that is your purpose. That is your focal point. That's what drives us. That's what we point people to. That's what we encourage ourselves with. That's what we encourage others with. It's a mindset that he's trying to instill into the early church. And in verse 9, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being. When? That's right. Who does evil. So this doing evil here is rejecting God's goodness. And by definition, God's goodness is putting himself on a cross to die for our sin. That is his goodness. So those who reject that, and then it says to the Jews first, and then also to the Greeks. So I'm not going to get into the Jews first today, because it's coming next week, and the next week, and the next week. But here's what I want to say. To the Jews first, just to make this simple, in case you don't come back to church ever again in your life. I want you to hear this. The Jews first, um, in chapter 3, verse 1, 2, or 3, somewhere around there, it actually says that God specifically says, I have empowered, I have given the Jews my word first. So they had his truth. They had his word first. They had it. They had his word first. And so they are going to be held accountable first. And then also to the Greeks. The Greeks got a second. Second thing I would say is Jesus was first sent to the Jews. They rejected him. And then to the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Gentiles. And so there's a natural order which is broke down in detail, beautifully broken down next week and the week after. All we're going to be kind of discussing is how this breaks out. But in verse 10, it says, For God shows no partiality. I'm sorry, verse 11. God shows no partiality. Okay, so to make this very clean for us today, the gospel reveals God's goodness. The gospel reveals God's wrath. You have no wrath to offer. You have no judgment to give because that's God's job. So stop judging the people around you. Don't do it. Get your eyes off them. Don't let them steal your joy. Don't let them steal your energy. You keep your eyes on God. Let him take your joy. Let him take your energy. We keep our eyes fixed on God because he is good. 
and his goodness in all circumstances. His goodness is always good. And then he says, to those who repent, that's who understands God's goodness. Those who fail to repent, they do not know God's goodness. They will only know God's wrath. And so tell me where in this story you don't have a sense, especially if you grew up in church, you don't have a sense that maybe you might be Jonah. Because those who fail to repent, they'll never know God's goodness. They'll never see God's goodness. And there are people in our lives who we think they don't even deserve to hear the truth. Yes, they do. God's goodness is for all. God himself says, I show no partiality. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've gone through, who you are, how bad you struggled. It doesn't matter. If you come to me, all who come to me, I will welcome. You come to me and I will be your God and you can be my people. There is no prerequisite of the things you had to do first. It is repent of your sin, confess Jesus as Lord, understand that that is an image of God's goodness to us. And he's saying, look, Anyone who comes to me, anyone, doesn't matter if you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you're Greek, doesn't matter if you're Gentile, doesn't matter if you're a beady-eyed, judgmental person, one less pastor of a BMW, doesn't matter who we are. He says, come to me. Why? Because he's good. He's good. So what Paul did here in this is very beautiful. Ultimately, what Paul was doing, was he was saying, let me tell you as an early church that you can either respond to God's goodness or you can respond to the things of the world. And here's what I want you to respond to. I want you to respond to the goodness of God. So Paul has just used chapter 2, the start of it, to say, will you respond to God's goodness? Will you let that motivate you? Will you let that captivate you? Will you let that and steer your life? Will you respond to the goodness of God? And this is where I'm going to leave us today. Will you respond to the goodness of God? Will you respond to his goodness? You know, he's never lied. He's always truthful. He's always fulfilling. We're about to take communion. Um, we're going to have a chance to respond through song for a moment. We're going to take communion, and even in communion, as I was sitting back there, it hit me. I've never thought of this before, ever, and it just hit me. Jesus is sitting down at the table, And as he's sitting at the table, the Lord's table, he says, this cup represents a new covenant. I will not drink of this cup until the kingdom of heaven. I won't take of the vine until the kingdom of heaven. He says these words. And then when Jesus goes on the cross, he's dying on the cross, they take the sponge and they dip it down and they try to offer him the wine and the vinegar, which would be from the vine. And he refuses it. Because he had told his disciples, I will not drink of this until the kingdom of God has come. He's saying, I will not take this, even though he wanted it, even though he desired it. And so I see just even in Jesus' death, he's still fulfilling his promises to us. Why? Because he's good. He's good. And so I want you right now to spend just a second, just a moment. And I want you to pray. And then we're going to respond to his goodness through song. And then we're going to respond to his goodness through communion. And then we're going to respond to his goodness by walking out of here, and we're going to reflect, and we're going to treat people like we really believe God has a purpose in his goodness. And that they, if they could just see his goodness, if they will recognize his goodness, they too will repent, and they will experience his goodness. So let's respond. If you bow your heads and close your eyes, right where he said, would you just take a moment? I know many of you are going through difficult times right now, but in your junk, God is good. Paul is telling the church early on in Rome, 
God's goodness consumes you. Let it consume you. Let his goodness consume you. Through loss, through suffering, let his goodness consume you. Can you name God, heads bowed, eyes closed, can you say, God, thank you, and can you name two things right now that you see his goodness in? What are two things you see his goodness in? To say, God, thank you for these two things. Right where you said, to say, God, thank you for these two things. Say it right where you are. God, I thank you for these two things. That's your response to his goodness, by giving him thanks. Now we're going to respond through song, and then we're going to respond through communion, and then we're going to respond through actually walking out his goodness in the world that God has blessed us to live in. Lord, I pray this over my church family, that we would see your goodness, recognize your goodness, we would live in your goodness. We praise you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And everybody in the house, respond, respond, and respond.